Uh, so just wanted to, to encourage you to spread the word about Rock the Block. We're, we're looking to uh, bless a lot of families in Boone with free school supplies. So um, if you know someone who would be blessed by that, invite them to that. Come on out yourself too. Even if you're like, no, I'm good, I don't need that. Come on out, it'll be fun. We'll have, we'll have some free food, we'll have some activities, just a good time to spend with one another and to get to know some people in the community. So that is a week from Thursday, um, from 6 to 8. So... All right, spread the word. So we're in Numbers. So if you want to turn to Numbers 13, we're going to to be going through 13 and most of chapter 14 today. And while you're going there, um, have you ever noticed that you constantly have to tell your eyes to shut up? Like, like here's here's what I mean. I'm, I'm driving down the road the other day, and I see a lake in the middle of the road ahead of me. I'm like, what is that? A lake, a river, huge puddle, something. I'm like, man, what is that? I tell my eyes, no, Matt, that is a mirage. It's super hot out. That's not a lake. And if I didn't tell my eyes to shut up, I would be slowing down or pumping the brake all the time. I'd never get to where I'm trying to go, right? Or, or like reflections in glass, so like, or in like a window. Like right here, I have to tell my eyes, okay, I don't think about it that consciously. I know that I'm not actually there, but I'm like, just hold off on the picture for a sec, okay? Um, I, have to tell my eye, I have to tell my eyes, no, Matt, you're not actually there. No, they're not actually there. They're not actually there. That's a reflection, okay? My eyes are, are lying to me in a sense. Um, so now let's throw the picture up. So you have the glass. This was during our uh, fifth year celebration last fall. And uh, I don't know if you can see it that well. It got blurred out a little bit. Um, some people thought that this reflection in, in the glass there, in the window there, looked kind of supernatural, ghost-like, whatever. It was a reflection, okay? It's, it's a reflection in the glass. That's what it is. I'm, I'm sticking to that. Um, <laughs> but we just have to tell our eyes just to be quiet often because... Um, because our eyes lie to us in a sense. So this happens sometimes in our relationship with God, though, too. It actually happens quite often. We're tempted to believe that what our eyes are telling us is true more than what God says. We're tempted to believe our eyes more than we believe God. So the big question for today in this passage in Numbers, in Numbers 13 and 14, for us, is do we believe God more than we believe our eyes? Or do we believe our eyes more than we believe God? And we're going to see in this story examples of two groups of people who believe their eyes more than God and then the other group believe God more than their eyes. So if you look at this with me, I'm just going to kind of tell this story and then we'll draw some conclusions. So um, 13 verse 1, God sends out some spies. They're at the promised land. God has promised them this land ever since Genesis 12 when he promised it to Abraham and then to his son Isaac and his son Jacob. Now here they are. They're about to go into this land and God sends out these spies to check it out. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, each one a chief among them. And then the next few verses, verse 3 to 16, you see the names of all of these guys. You can check them out on your own um, and the tribes that they're from. But verse 16, at the end, it says, And Moses called Hoshea, the son of Nun, Joshua. Now, I want to point this out because Moses, somewhere along the line here, changes Joshua's name. And it's a foreshadowing 
I don't want us to miss this. And I'm not referring to the fact that Joshua had no parents. The son of none? Nobody? All right. I tried. Um, but no, I'm referring to the fact that uh, his name was Hoshea, which means he saved. But Joshua means Yahweh saves. God saves. He's foreshadowing the fact that Joshua is going to be the one who actually saves the nation of Israel here, him and Caleb, because of their faith. And eventually, God would actually bring salvation through a Joshua as well. Joshua, in Greek, is Jesus. This is the name of the Savior. So it's, it's foreshadowing in, in a couple different ways. So I don't want us to miss that, but let's move on to verse 17 to the instructions here that Moses gives to these spies. He says, he spent them out to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and go into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad, and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds, and whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. And out of the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Okay. There's the instructions. Now here's their journey. Verse 21. They went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo Hamath. They went up to the Negev and came to Hebron, Ahamen, Sheshai, and Telmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eshkol and cut from there a branch with a singular cluster of grapes, and they carried it on a pole between the two of them. It must have been some fantastic grapes, okay? Maybe GMO grapes or something. I don't know, but here they are. Um, they also brought some pomegranates and figs, and that place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. Verse 25, And at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. Here's the report, verse 26. And they came to Moses and Aaron, all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them, to all the congregation, and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. It's prosperous, they're saying. And this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Okay, so at this point, they're just reporting what they saw. They're saying, hey, it's fantastic land, but there's, there's a formidable people there. They're not drawing any conclusions yet. We'll get there in a second. They're just saying the facts. But there's going to be two very different conclusions drawn from this same reality. The first conclusion we see in the next verse, verse 30, from Caleb, and as we're going to learn in a couple of verses, from Joshua as well. They believe God more than they believed their eyes. Verse 30, But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. That's their conclusion. We've got this. Okay, God is with us. It's going to be all right. We can, we can do this. Yeah, these people are formidable, but God is with us. But verse 31, the other 10 spies believe their eyes more than they believe God. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. Now, I want you to realize here 
that these men saw the exact same things. It's not like Joshua and Caleb took a little route over here and the other ten went over here somewhere. No, they, they were together the whole time on this journey and saw the exact same things, but had two very different perspectives, which actually reveals two different hearts. As we're going to learn in a second, Israel, the whole nation of Israel, except for Moses and Aaron and Joshua and Caleb, believed their eyes more than they believed God. Let's keep reading. Verse 32, here it is. They brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. Then chapter 14, verse 1, Israel joins in. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt. Or that we had died in the wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They believed their eyes way more than they believed God. Why? Well, I want to share a quote with you from a book I read recently. Uh, by Dane Ortland, called Gentle and Lowly. He said this, Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. Dark thoughts of God. That is what Israel was having. And I want to show you these in the text. Israel's dark thoughts of God, one was this, that God doesn't care about us. They twist and they doubt God's motives. 14 verse 3, why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? They're saying, God doesn't care about us. He's not for us. He's against us. He just wanted to kill us. It's this big cosmic joke. He just wanted to kill us out here. The second dark thought they have about God is that God breaks his promises. They're like, hey, God, you promised to bless us with this good land, but instead you're giving us land that's impossible to even possess because of the people in it. God, you say, you say one thing and then you do the opposite. It's just like everyone else in life, you can't be trusted. Thirdly, they believe that God's not actually with them. God's not even mentioned in their conclusion, in their report from, from 1331 all the way to 14.2. And then when he is mentioned in, in 14 verse 3, they just blame him. God's not actually here with us. If he was, he wouldn't have led us into this mess. These are their dark thoughts of God. And, and lastly, the fourthly, they believe that people are greater than God. And we see this at its height in 14.4. And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Choose our own leader. People are greater than God. God can't be trusted. He's too, weak. He's too weak. He's way too shifty in his ways. Let's find another leader who will lead us to sure safety. We can do it better than God because people are greater than God. These are the things, the dark thoughts that they were having of God. 
But Caleb and Joshua believed God more than they believed their eyes. 14 verse 5, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were, there, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They believed God way more than they believed their eyes. Why? They did it because they truly believed God. They truly believed that God delighted in them. God delights in us. They knew, it says in verse 8, hey, if he delights in us, he's going to bring us through this. They knew that all they had to do was simply trust God, and he would delight in them and give them favor as they went into the land. They knew how undeserving they were to even be his people, yet they believed God, God must really care about us. He must really delight in us. So he's going to take care of us and he's going to come through on his promises, which leads to the second thing that they truly believe. They believe that God is with us, but they believe that God fulfills his promises. Joshua and Caleb believe that God, God hasn't gone back on his promises yet. Why would he do it now? Remember, he delivered us from slavery in Egypt. He parted the Red Sea for us. He gave us his very presence among us. And then he gave us food to eat. And he even gave us food to eat for the road. Um, a great host, if you host someone uh, at, your, at your home and you have a meal, a great host will send some food home with you, right? Here's some cupcakes for the road. Here's some meat in a Ziploc bag. Have that. Here's some smoked meat. It's going to be great. Bring it home, right? That's what a great host does. This is what God does. He could have just said, hey, okay, you're out of Egypt. Let's go. Let's go to the promised land. Bring them there. No, he's like, no, I'm going to provide for you. He actually gave them food along the journey. And Joshua and Caleb remember all this. And they go, he's not going to do all of this stuff for us, and then break his promise to us. That's not, it's not consistent with who he is or what he's done. So God fulfills his promise. Thirdly, they, they truly believe that God is with us. The simple reality was, was not just acknowledged, but fully believed by them. God is with us. It says that here in verse 9. God is with us, and it makes all the difference. These people are really tall, but it's like Joshua and Caleb saw that, and then they step back and go, wait a minute. Yeah, they're tall, but God made them. God created those people, and he is with us. We can do this in his strength. Yeah, that, that city is huge. I don't know how we're going to overcome this, but, oh, yeah, God is here. God speaks, and cities are destroyed. This is our God. Just the fact that they acknowledge God's presence is in stark contrast to the rest of Israel. See, the rest of Israel was at the very least had forgotten that God was present with them. 
Fourthly, they believe that God is greater than people. Twice in verse 9 here it says, do not fear the people. Do not fear them. The only reason to not fear the people is because God is greater than people. Caleb and Joshua seem to not suffer from the same spiritual amnesia that the rest of Israel had right now. If you remember back in Exodus, if they would just remember back, this wasn't that long ago for them. If they would just remember back, they had been delivered from Pharaoh and from Egypt. Pharaoh changed his mind. He's like, oh, just kidding. I, I don't want to let them go. I want my slaves back. So he's, he's coming after them. And they're stuck between them and the wilderness and the Red Sea. And I'll show it to you on the screen. Exodus 14, when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. In a similar position, they are here in Numbers as they're about to enter the land. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? Sound familiar? I mean, they're saying almost the exact same thing here in Numbers. What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Joshua and Caleb remembered what happened when their eyes told them at the Red Sea that, that people are greater than God. God proved that he is greater than people. So here, the same thing happens, and they trust the Lord. And everyone else should have been there by now. They should have remembered this and been at the same spot as Caleb and Joshua. But they remembered and believed, Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for us as we enter this land and we have only to be silent. So what are the consequences? What are the consequences of Israel's unbelief? Well, God justly threatens punishment. 14 verse 10. All the congregation said uh, then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They're about to stone Caleb and Joshua, the only ones who are trusting the Lord and believing the Lord. This this is how This is how messed up they are. We're going to kill the only ones who are trusting the Lord here. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting all the people of Israel. God steps in. Verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. But Moses intercedes on the behalf of Israel. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will will hear of it. For you brought up this people in your might from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land. They've heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people. For you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And if you kill this people as one man, 
And the nations who have heard your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give to them that he has killed them in the wilderness. And now, please, let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised, saying, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please, pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. Moses pleads their case for them. And he's saying, don't do it for their sake. Yeah, they are not believing you. Yeah, they don't deserve this. They are not trusting you. Don't do it for the people's sake. Do it for your own glory's sake, God. Do it so that people will go, wow, God is amazing. God is full of grace and patience, even with those jokes over there. So God listens And he graciously punishes them. He doesn't do everything he just says. And I'll just summarize 1420 to 38. He spares Caleb and Joshua for their true belief in him. But he lets the rest wander and die in the wilderness. It's like Romans 1. He just gives them up. Fine, if that's what you want, that's what's going to happen. And ironically, it's what they asked for. Look at 14 verse 2. Look at that verse. They asked for that. Lord, if we just had died in Egypt or at least died right here in the wilderness, God's like, okay, that's what's going to happen. He ironically punishes them. And this is a pattern. Chapter 11 in Numbers, we saw that they died from, from probably food poisoning for the meat that they asked for. They asked for the quail. And while the meat was between their teeth, God sent a plague. And then in chapter 12 last week, Chris, if you, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. He did a great job. But he showed us that Miriam, who was saying racist things and, and, and being racist towards Moses' wife, actually had her skin color changed by leprosy. That was her punishment. Ironic. It, it's, it's like a child at a meal, okay? A young child at a meal. They're like, I'm not going to eat supper tonight. And you go, okay, fine, don't eat supper tonight. But if you ask me for anything else the rest of the night, you're not getting any. You're just going to bed hungry. Fine. Later, of course. Daddy, I'm hungry. Sorry. I already told you, you chose this, right? That's what's going on here. They're like, we, we, it'd be better for us to die in the wilderness. And God's like, okay, fine. And that's what's going to happen. So just, just kind of mentally prepare yourself. The rest of Numbers... That's what's going to happen. This whole next generation, or this generation that's complaining, is going to die in the wilderness. How is God gracious in this? He's gracious because he promises to let the next generation, their kids, inherit the promised land with Joshua as their leader. What do we do with all of this? Well, we struggle with the same battle to believe God. Let me remind you of this quote from Dane Ortland. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool toward him in the wake of it. 
See, we, we always have this battle of believing that God really delights in us and cares for us. We have this, these, these dark thoughts where God doesn't really care about us. But here's the thing. Here's what's tricky. Rarely do we say in our minds these dark thoughts over here. We, we don't say them like that. We say them in just a little bit different way. And we start to believe it. For me, it's often this. Instead of God doesn't care about me, I think, you know, God doesn't actually want me. He definitely doesn't need me. I, 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 I rationalize it this way. He definitely doesn't need me. I see that in Scripture. He, he, definitely, um, he definitely will accomplish his plans without me. So then I wrongfully assume, well, he doesn't actually want me then. What I'm doing today for him doesn't matter much. Others are way more valuable to him than I am. And it spirals into lies from the pit of hell. And it all spiraled from failing to really believe that God cares about me. God loves me. See, the, the, the truths I have to keep reminding myself of are, are like the ones in Zephaniah 3.17 where it says, The Lord your God is living among you. He is a mighty Savior. He will take delight in you with gladness. With his love, he will calm all your fears. He will rejoice over you with joyful songs. I have to go, Matt, yeah, you don't deserve it. Yeah, he can accomplish stuff without you today. But he wants to be your dad. He rejoices over you with joyful songs. The second dark truth here that God breaks his promises. This, this usually creeps in because we convince ourselves that God promised us something that he actually hasn't promised us. For example, um, I, I hear this from time to time. Um, tithing or, or giving money to God will make me more financially stable. If I just, if I just give to him, he'll, he'll treat me really well financially. And then we go, well, God, why, why am I still struggling to pay the bills? God, why haven't I gotten that, that big house yet? Here's the thing. God never said that. God never said that if you give to him, he's going to make you more financially stable. Certainly, giving money to God, tithing, produces joy because we're prioritizing God in a really tangible way. Jesus says where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So you're just, you're, you're in a really tangible way, you're saying, God, you are the most important thing in my life. But nowhere in scripture are we guaranteed earthly wealth because we give. See, God doesn't break his promises. We just like to twist his promises. Number three, God's not with us. Feelings trick us here all the time. God does not feel present sometimes in our lives, sometimes for long periods of time. He doesn't feel present. But our feelings don't change reality. God is with us all the time. He's here whether it seems like it or not. Not that long ago, I went through a devotional for a whole year that focused on God being present with me. This was recently, okay? I, I've been a believer for, for decades. I've been following Jesus for decades. And I did this recently, and it had, it had a profound effect on my life. Because I started to live aware of his presence. 
I mean, it, it changes the ball game. It's so simple, but he's here all the time. When, when you are tempted with, with lustful thoughts, guess what? He is there. When you're discouraged and lonely, he is there. When you have no strength to be patient with other, with other people, he is there to strengthen you. See, my, my eyes and my feelings often tell me that God is not there. But that doesn't change reality. And the same is true for you. He is always there with you. Number four, people are greater than God. This dark thoughts, functionally, we, we believe this all the time in many ways. And you're like, no, no, I don't. I know that God's greater than people. You might know it. I'm saying functionally, you probably don't believe it as much as you want to believe it. When we say things, we know dishonor God just to get a laugh from somebody else. We're saying people are greater than God. When, when you shut up about things of God because you're afraid of how they're going to take it or react, or what they'll think of you, people have become greater than God. When, when you work harder in front of your boss or your clients or your coworkers than you do when you're alone, you're saying that people are greater than God. When someone's critique of you ruins your whole week or month or year and you just let it overtake you, people have become greater than God. So what are the dark thoughts of God that you often have? I want to challenge you to take some time today or tomorrow to just jot them down. Then find some scripture to counter them and have those scriptures handy or, or maybe even more helpful than that. Share dark thoughts that you have of God with a friend or spouse. We can help each other find scripture to battle. We can encourage each other to battle those dark thoughts of God to remind us of the truth of who God actually is. We can pray for one another. It's a daily battle to believe these core things about God because often it's easier to believe our eyes than to believe God. So where's the hope in all this? What about the times that we don't believe God and, and we do indulge dark thoughts of God? Here's our hope. Jesus is the truer, greater Moses interceding for us in those moments. Moses interceded for the, for the people's unbelief and the next generation was forgiven and pardoned. But Jesus intercedes for us in our moments of unbelief and we are pardoned on the spot. Romans 8.34, it says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's praying on our behalf. Jesus cares so deeply and undeservedly for us that he steps into our dark thoughts of himself and forgives them because of his blood. All of this reminds me of the man who asked Jesus to cast a demon out of his son. He's like, it's this demon won't come out, Jesus. Will, will you please take care of this? And he says in Mark 9, 24, I believe that you can do this, but help my unbelief. Isn't that us? As we wrestle with dark thoughts of God and struggle to believe God, make this your prayer each and every day. God, I, I believe you, but help my unbelief.
Let's pray. God, I thank you that even in our moments of unbelief, you bring us help. Thank you for that hope, God, that you are at the right hand of God interceding for us on our behalf, that you are pleading our case. We don't deserve that, God. You step into our dark thoughts of you. I pray, God, that we would, we would have the strength from your spirit to believe you way more than our eyes this week. To take those dark thoughts that we have of you, God, and replace them with truth, with trust of you, with, with full faith of you, God. I pray for those moments where those dark thoughts are just so overpowering that you would provide us with help in believing you from other believers, from songs, from your, your word, God, whatever. I, I just pray for those moments where it's hard to even say, I believe, help my unbelief. That you would give us strength even to pray that prayer, God. Thank you for being so gracious and patient with us that even in our moments of unbelief, you step in and give us strength. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.